It's a beautiful Tuesday, uh, creeping towards noon here in sunny Los Angeles, California. DJ Them Jeans, what the fuck is going on? I'm sweaty, bro. I'm hot. I'm having, I'm having a smoothie. Oh, wow. It really came down to the final seconds of this of our scheduled pod today. It feels good, though. I know. I like when you, I like when you cut it close. I, you, you said something today in the, cause, you know, there's been a picture going around of, um, cursed Donald Glover walking around shirtless in some yellow Nike shorts with a pair of Saucony running shoes and Apple watch. And I believe a bucket hat in New York city shop, the look shop, the look. And I was saying that to walk around in that state, you must look like you're chiseled from stone. Donald looks better than he has, but it's still not good enough. In my opinion, to go shirtless in public. And and to, for, for clarity for listeners in that state, you're referring to the state of being shirtless. Yeah. It's shirtless in public in a non beach or or pool setting. Right, right, right. In an urban, in an urban environment. And then Jason went on to share an anecdote about him driving shirtless yesterday. Hawaiian style. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't live in Florida. What was your reasoning for this, and how do you think you looked? Great little set of questions. Number one, the reasoning. I just finished hitting a little tennis ball against the wall for like an hour. Okay. So I was just drenched in sweat, and then I was going to – and then I was driving to the gym where I would then work out some more. So it was I – was, I wasn't like cruising the boulevard with the top down – Trying to be spotted. I was just okay. simply doing it because it was hot as hell. If I put my shirt back on, it would just get drenched. So, you know, the five, ten minutes it took me to drive to the gym, I just did a little. Were the windows down so people could, all, all your Armenian homies could see you. Yes. The windows were down and I got some looks. Sure. Okay. You sure, know, sure. some people, some people did a little stop and I'll take a peek at that, and then why don't we go back for one more kind of energy, you know? Of course, yeah. I mean, how could they not? When they see something that white and odd in public, (laughs) they must. I was wearing wearing some Oakley shades. That was the only thing I had up top on you know my dad my dad um when he would finish his run he always had a nice beach towel in the car to put down on the seat you know for that level of sweat did you bring a a towel to sit on or did you just go raw dog without a bag (laughs) raw dog without a bag i didn't i didn't mean to disrespect the nini like that but well the seats are cloth you know so you gotta be careful with that it's just it doesn't it doesn't (laughs) it doesn't you know it doesn't quite just wipe off the way that the the smooth napa leather kind of would but i'm glad that you i'm glad that you you have napa leather on your on your oh i don't know dude i have no idea yeah i I truly have no idea i want everything stock you know that uh but i'm glad that you feel free and i have to say you look better with your shirt i've seen you with your shirt off only once or twice in my life but i can guarantee you look better than donald glover so that's a victory for how long gone i don't know i mean he dg friend of the pod donnie i thought he looked great i think (laughs) bro he looks i committing to to dijon head to toe you're sort of asking for it like you're you're color blocking so much that you're it's a little bit of notice me queen going on but then he has the the demeanor attitude and look on his face of like oh my god don't look at me i hope i don't get spotted i'm just trying to be a normal oh yeah human being just, walking around in the world <laughs> be- shirtless wearing head-to-toe dijon <laughs> jw anderson panties mixed with my arcteryx it's a lot and it's you know it luckily his look is as bad as his music so it all kind of adds up for me you know but i'm glad that there's a, once again some synergy between you and donnie yeah yeah we're back we're back on the same team it's all good <laughs> it's all good we love yellow together speaking of speaking of musical artists I, when i was just at equinox normally 
you know the, the the music that they play in a gym you've been to gyms a lot it's usually not great right actually yesterday at uh at, oh at easton i'm not looking i'm not looking for an actually no 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 it was worse than i could have imagined they played uh new york new york by frank sinatra while i was <laughs> hex bar deadlifting this is that's not a joke. the music they were playing yeah and 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 you know hunter hunter is a is a, a musical theater graduate from the carnegie mellon university so this motherfucker starts harmonizing you know what i mean i'm like bro i'm trying to hit a pr so here. you're you're doing deadlift squats or some shit and it's just <laughs> New York. Yeah, 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 yeah. Bro, I know this it, was a gay gym, but show tunes. <laughs> no, it went. And and the chick working the front who's controlling the music again is a chick. It ain't even a gay guy. No, no, no. She's not controlling the music. I'm sure they have some. No, she was. No, she was. It's Spotify, bro. Really? Yeah. You wish it was that. You wish it was advanced. What was what was happening at Equinox? You can't be playing Frank Sinatra New York at twenty in, at a gym that cost a lot of money in 2022. Luckily, the gym is very affordable, uh, so I didn't kind of register a complaint. It doesn't matter the decade or the membership yeah, right. fees. Never. Yeah, you're right. The, the music was. It was a, definitely like a playlist that went left. You know what I mean? Because I heard it mm-hmm. building to a mistake. And then the mistake happened while I had three plates on either side of a hex bar. <laughs> I wish it would have kind of delayed or maybe advanced. I don't know. You what, know how many DJ sets I've had in my lifetime that, <laughs> that slowly built into a mistake? <laughs> you know, some might say, Jason, that our lives have just slowly built into a mistake. No, no, no. I've been spiraling upward. The road gets steeper, tougher, and more difficult. But, but anyways, I'm over at Equinox. I'm in the locker room and they play different music in the locker room versus the gym. I like that. Sometimes they'll do a, a good song every once in a while, like a drum and bass remix of a garbage song or something <laughs> like that, but mm-hmm. it's normally standard fare. Uh, and then the locker room sometimes will have some indie hits going go. on, you know, like a cheeky beach house B-side from the second album, something like that. But it's usually like TikTok like saxophone pool party house like you know, chain smokers type shit. And then today I come out of the sauna. They're playing um, Erland Oi, Kings of Convenience. Kings of Convenience. They're playing Kings of Convenience, goes straight into Cat Power. Oh, baby. And I was like, this is sick. Way to go, Equinox. You got my letters. But on the downside, there's just something off. Like, it, it, it felt wrong to be in a male locker room surrounded by people who have, like, tattoos on their chest of different Armenian churches. <laughs> and, like, words written in Old English that surely signify the the number of people they've killed, not if they've killed. And I want to hear chain smokers in that environment. Like, I want mm-hmm. to see someone's dick from the back while chain smokers is playing you're right it felt wrong having cat power in the, in the men's room with me i think that cat power is something that could be shared among fellas but only in the you know warm cockles of the wiltern or airpods not these fellows or airpods not 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 the armenian killers in the locker room um <laughs> cat power and chest day don't kind of go hand in hand for me no i'm not talking about system of a down you said the armenian killers oh yeah i'm, I'm sorry no <laughs> Smile like you mean it. <laughs> Smile or I'll kill your family. <laughs> <laughs> the Armenian killer system of a down. God damn it. That's really funny. Oh, I did that. Oh, he did that. Jason did it again. Slay TJ. Yeah, so today we have um, we have a guest that we 
have been trying to get on for a while. We've had a little phone tag, a little back and forth, but he's a he's a legendary mm-hmm. writer, auteur. He's appeared on a zillions of podcasts. Unfortunately, talking about sports a lot, but we don't kind of we don't we don't recognize the Ringer Network here. But you know, mm-hmm. it's cute for other people. Yeah, he's written several. <laughs> Several books, as I said before, if you had a Friendster profile, a Makeout Club profile, and you didn't list uh, sex, drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, um, I'm sure you were not getting laid. <laughs> His other, uh, Fargo Rock City, um, which was a uh, memoir, is also a classic. And then his new book, The 90s, uh, is a... <laughs> is available on uh amazon you know where i shop for my books let's give chuck a jingle and see what's going on we're gonna do a tight 15 on your bob barker mic so go ahead let's let's get this moving (laughs) well uh you know my wife has got one of those uh like those they're called yetis or whatever you know uh Mm -hmm. it's a big one like a cooler or a cozy cozy one those are prosumer Looks like what you got over there is a little more true professional, like mm-hmm. you bought it in Burbank or something, you know? <laughs> hey, thanks th- thanks for having me on this. It's a very it's a pleasure. Are you sure about that, Chuck? Are you sure? Do you know who we are? Have you heard of this podcast, or are you just doing this? Well, you know, you, you get a lot of media coverage. Yeah? So, yes, I do. That's right. Yeah. If you want to pitch a story about us, just let us know. We're happy. We're, kinda, we're, we're open to whatever. <laughs> you may be... Maybe there's some outlets in North Dakota that we haven't kind of touched yet, so I feel like you have some connections there. Maybe all of them, yeah. yeah. That's true. Yeah, that's maybe maybe. What, all what's of them. the name of the local Portland paper? Hopefully, it starts with a P. Well, the Oregonian. Okay, mm, the Oregonian. That's, that's fun. I really like that. That's yeah. a lot cooler than Los Angeles Times. I'll tell you that. No, it's not, bro. Come on. <laughs> the Times is a cool name. It's a it's a little more fun. Uh, where are you? Are you coming to us from Minnesota? No, I live in Portland, Oregon. Oh, I thought you... Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I knew Jason was asking about Portland. I assume you had some connections because you're an indie rocker at heart, but I didn't know you actually lived there. <laughs> no, I live in the forest. Yeah, I live here in the forest. Like Unabomber style or like Portland style? Well, my working office is kind of Unabomber style. That's a cabin outside <laughs> of my house, but I'm actually in my house uh-huh. because the Wi-Fi is better and I did not want to put you guys in a position also do i need to tape this on like QuickTime? we're doing it and you sound good so we should be fine okay when you said wi-fi i thought you were gonna say the wife no and then i was like oh chuck's going down a different (laughs) he's like i'm I'm potting from inside the house today because the wife's letting me (laughs) can you walk us through your unabomber style uh creative cabin what do we have is there a mini fridge or what are we working with no there's not even a fridge there's a, a there's a fireplace. Whoa. There's no water. Okay. There's electricity. It's mm-hmm. just when I bought this house, there was this little log cabin mm-hmm. in the backyard. I don't even know what the fuck it was used for because the door is like a standard front door. So you couldn't put a lawnmower in there or anything. But there's no there's no running water. There was nothing. There was no carpeting. There was nothing on the walls. I don't know if it was like a high-end playhouse maybe. But then I, got, I had a contractor come in. He painted everything orange. Put put a uh, you know, carpet down. Orange. So hold hold on hold on. Is yeah. is orange a known like creative color? Or Did is Virginia that... Wolf have her cabin orange? Yeah. What is what is? Or is this just the color of your hair and you wanted it to match? Well, do you know like how Prince was with purple? Okay. Yes. That's how, yes. That's how I am with orange. And, and anything that can be a color, I always take orange. 
Okay. Always. So you're pushing. So the Range Rover is orange, <laughs> is what you're saying? Well, if it was, if I was buying a Range Rover for myself, yeah. But it's like you got to make compromises. You end up getting blue things and black things and white things. But if mm-hmm. I have total autonomy, okay. Or like, oh, for example, like um, here's like uh, like my like my cell phone case. That's okay. orange. Oh, yeah. Like okay. any anything anything that I'm buying for myself, if it mm-hmm. comes in multiple colors, I'm always going to pick orange. Okay. And have you have you talked to your therapist about the psychology <laughs> behind this? Or is or is it just you like orange? I'd like to think that it's rooted in something more deep. I think I know the psychology behind it. Okay. Because when I was in college, I took like a visual communication class. Mm-hmm. And I was told at that time. Orange was already my favorite color. That <laughs> orange represents hunger, physical hunger, okay. but hunger in every context. Okay. So I guess that's what they say. You know, if you like orange, you're a hungry person, as they always say. Yeah, as they always say. So you mean hungry for success and and like a beautiful life, not necessarily hungry for like a slice of pepperoni, or is this across the board for any and all forms of hunger? It's. it's the latter is definitely true. I suppose that's the you know the pejorative way of looking at sure. it. That I'm just like a glutton, <laughs> but I I think you know I'm just a hungry for anything. For anything is out there. If it can be consumed, I want to consume it. This is interesting because do you know about other colors? Because I would love for you to diagnose me live on. Forgot air. them all. Learned them once. Don't only okay. remembered orange. Okay, that that makes sense because college is kind of a waste of time. Thanks for proving that to us here quickly. It, with it, that. Very much. I mean, that's the kind of thing. That's the kind of things you pull away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm an orange lover myself. I also lean purple sometimes. It's pretty interesting. I do have like kind of a. A deep sexual hunger as well, so that kind of all checks out. Yeah, but purple, purple is the color of royalty, which makes me want to like it more. But I do find it a slightly offensive to my like aesthetic palette. So, Chuck, you're in the cabin, and then you're solo. When you're in the cabin, does the old ball and chain know not to come a knocking when the when the old typewriter's click clacking away? Well, she's a writer too. So she's she's writing in the house. Okay, she writes in the house, and I write in the cabin. Because so because of your chivalry, you allow her to sit in the beautiful uh, home while you're kind of out back with the cattle. Well, it's just I can have one space that's just all my stuff. It's like it's like I got like trunks out there with my stuff in it. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, things that wouldn't really be practical. Where do you keep? So are you saying you keep <laughs> the CD collection in these trunks, or where's the CD collection? Don't have CDs anymore. Oh, I thought I I really took you. For a CD cat, I had them for a long time, and then okay. Well, here's what here's what happened with that. Okay, so they obviously took up a huge amount of room. This is when my wife and I. This is before we were married. We were still living in uh, the Peter Cooper Village in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. So I had this entire wall of CDs, and she was like, "This is insane." You know, you know, why don't you digitize them? Uh, and I really fought it, but then I finally did it. I kept I kept about. 300 arbitrarily ones I wanted. I tried to digitize the rest. And at first I was like, this is great. Cause it turns out I like music. I don't like cylindrical metal discs. I didn't miss them at all. Mm-hmm. But now <laughs> as time has crawled forward, as we've had moved into the future, I now have a growing suspicion that a lot of the streaming services that currently have everything and give me access to everything um, are going to change or shift. And there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff that's just going to be lost forever, at least to me. Okay, so you're saying some of your maybe more uh, underground releases will not be available in the AirPods Pros? Is that what you're saying? Well, not just underground things like just, just old like things? Ma- mainstream things that 
have absolutely no meaning outside of the time that they existed. Mm-hmm. And uh, for whatever reason, there will be, uh, I don't know, disputes over the ownership, what label owns sure, this. Sure, what, sure, sure. You know, and, and they'll just be gone. And I'll be, then there'll be something, you know, a Kula Shaker record or something stupid <laughs> I'll need to listen to for whatever reason, and I won't be able to find it. It'll just be gone. Okay. And let, you know, although it'll probably, it'll probably still be on YouTube because YouTube will survive. Exactly. YouTube, YouTube is the bomb shelter for Kula Shaker. That's, I, I, I think you're, I think you're right. Yeah. I, I was dying for an example, and you dropping Kula Shaker <laughs> couldn't have been more perfect. That's why this podcast exists for these. You know, we made a CD. Actually, we did it in album last year a double album a double cd i was charlie does his homework not melancholy and infinite sadness like the stack more of a (laughs) a modern less plastic use vibe um but i think that the uh you know i think that a lot of people bought it the way that teens are buying vinyl as just a a way to support us in a collector's item that they're not going to crack and throw in the cd changer because they don't have one did you sell it in an extremely long cardboard box? <laughs> I wish. I wish. Yeah. I tried to find some of those in, in bulk on eBay because I would. I mean, that's like a use your illusion style long box. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, that would have been obviously ideal. But what was the purpose of the long box? Was it just stylistic? Anti theft. Same reason. That, okay. I mean, because cassettes used to come like in the, that plastic yeah, arm. Yeah. You know, it was, that was just the whole idea. No, I don't know. I think that wasn't there a long box that was just purely cardboard before the plastic um, security thing was in there, and like because it was hard to kind of cascade CDs like that to flip through them like you'd flip through vinyl. I could be wrong. It's possible. I just thought they were anti-theft things. How much theft? How much theft have you done in your life, Chuck? You a shoplifter? Not real. No, it wasn't a shoplifter. For me, it's a power thing, Chuck. Yeah, yeah it's I mean, no, you don't go to the you got a Whole Foods out there. You don't like to maybe, you know, one for you, one for them when you're ringing things up at the self-checkout? You know, I go to New Seasons, which is just the closer to my house and there is no self-checkout option there is at like the bigger kind of more conventional mm-hmm. new seasons kind of feels like a new age church to me to me Chuck. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. it's like a mosaic kind of vibe new seasons is like whole foods except you can also get frosted flakes oh like they have okay. some items okay. they have some regular items but other than that it's almost uh, like you can get Mountain Dew there. You can get um, uh, you can get uh, like Pringles there. Okay, but okay. you can't get everything there. They just it's like they have it's all organic, sort of healthier stuff, and then a few of the kind of traditional processed. Items. So you can grab you can mm-hmm. grab the the you know the good stuff for the kids, but then when you're feeling like a bad boy, you can gulp down a Monster Energy and have a can of Pringles, and it's no problem. They have it all. Yeah, I guess that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> Yeah, kind of like a sprouts here. Uh, this is a this is a strange sort of conversation for the podcast, though. This can't be what your audience. This is exactly. Are you strange meaning? You're wrong. Strange meaning, mind-numbingly boring. You're right, Chuck. And don't worry. Yeah. Whenever I uh, go through and I edit the whole show. Oh really? So if okay. nothing, if 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 something doesn't make the cut. We're just throwing baloney at the wall right now and seeing what's going to stick. So, <laughs> uh, like a, a one time, you know, Rick Rubin has a podcast where he normally yeah. talks to musicians. So he asked me to be on his podcast. Mm-hmm. He interviewed me for, I think it was like three and a half hours. Jesus! And then I was like, I was like, I gotta go. And he was <laughs> like, Well, I kind of have the same philosophy I use in the studio, which is you just keep going because you never know like when the magic's going to happen. And I was like. I can't do that, man. I, I got to go. It's like, I got to go. Did you listen to it? Upstairs or whatever. And then, then, then the podcast never ran. It never <laughs> ran. So I guess, 
So I guess we never got to the part. That's fucked up. That is. Well, fun. it was interesting too because he was in Hawaii. He he had went out to Hawaii and got stranded during the pandemic and then just stayed there. But I had assumed that he must have been in New York or something. So there was a big confusion over time zones. Yeah, if if I'm in vacation in Hawaii. I do not want a podcast to do a four or five hour marathon with with Klosterman or anyone just to get some some sweetness. And I also think that he should be so lucky to have you on a pod. I think you would have been. Uh, I mean, Rick doesn't know what he had, what he's lost, is what I'm saying. Well, I mean, I, maybe I, I probably wasn't interesting because I was. I spent most of the time asking him questions. Uh, certainly, there were more things about his life <laughs> that I was interested in than he seemed to be interested in my life, which I don't think he knew much about. I think he knew I was a music writer. I think that was about as far as it went. Do you? Uh, I mean, it was a great, it was a, it was a fun conversation. I'm glad I. Ta- I mean, I learned some things about Black Sabbath. Oh, he's an incredibly insightful. <laughs> had bro. you had you talked to him before? No, I never had. Chuck, do you have beef with Malcolm Gladwell? Are you guys cool? You know, I haven't talked to him in a bunch of years, but we <laughs> don't have any issues. Why? Why? Why do you think that we would be at war? I don't. I don't think that you would be at war or have beef at all. It's just a fantasy that I would like to see happen. A couple weekends ago, I went to the World Track and Field championships in eugene and i assumed he would be there uh-huh. so i thought i would run into him and oh, I would yeah. talk to him but i didn't run into him i never saw him <laughs> yeah he's a member of the running community why were you there yeah, i kind of like track you know it's not too far from here some friends of mine from college in the middle of the pandemic were like watching this on television and they were like we should all get together when the pandemic is over and go to the world track and field championships and we were all like sure it seemed like it was a thousand years in the future so then he bought tickets so then we ended up going to it it was fun it was nice being there nice nice stadium couldn't these guys just watch friends like everyone else we had to get into track and field during covid <laughs> it was yeah, surprising it was surprising niche. to all of us i think to find ourselves at a track meet since none of us had ever really went to a track meet since high school but so are you like drinking beer and stuff at this thing or is it a little more buttoned up no, you. I was drinking beer. Okay, yeah, that's what <laughs> I thought. That's why I asked. Yeah, it, no, it's, it wasn't a buttoned-up track meet. What it was like, you know, it's it's not like the dog show or whatever in MG. It was like it's like you know it's people running. It's a sporting event. No, it is. It, it is. No, yeah, I know it's on, a sporting Chris. event, but it seems you know it just seems a little. It seems more buttoned up in my mind. But maybe that's because I haven't been to one before. Well, it's it's a little. I mean, the the crowd is filled with people who are the type of person who likes track so much they will go to a track meet so it is a different kind of sports fan mm-hmm. you know it's mm-hmm. uh it, you, <laughs> there didn't seem to be a lot of like casual sports fans in the in yeah, the crowd no. you know no i was just going to say that's kind of how much of a sports fanatic you are is that you'll even you know you're like drake with his betting <laughs> if it's on you're going to watch it you have the espn ocho package on the tv in Eugene, you're whatever you know. Women's volleyball, let's get it popping. You know, are you like that? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't watch everything. There's a bunch of sports I don't watch at all. But I mean, I do watch a lot of football, a lot of basketball, some track. Because mm-hmm. you don't do fantasy shit, do you? I play fantasy college basketball, college football, and then I'm in a couple fantasy basketball leagues. Okay, but fantasy fantasy doesn't count. I'm, we're talking a little, you know, don't tell the wife type of sports betting. You know what I mean? I do this thing called pigskin mania. Where you got to pick, <laughs> you, you, you gotta, you gotta pick five games against the spread every week, college or pro. Get or like three okay. college, two pro, or like three pro, two college. And you got to get all five right to get anything back. And it's almost impossible. Yeah, that's, like it's, that sounds. I mean, the thing is, I, I, I if I, I would love. This is mania. I would love to understand how they set the lines in Vegas because the level of accuracy 
is <laughs> just befuddling to me. I mean, it'll be the first game of the year. Ohio State is playing like Eastern Michigan or something, and they'll set the line at mm-hmm. 48 and a half points. And I'll be like, well, how can you, you know? And then the likelihood that that game is like decided added by like 45 or 49 points is crazy. Like, like they are, <laughs> they are better. The guys setting the lines in Vegas are better at their job. As far as I can tell than anyone is at anything <laughs> like the, their, their ability to make every single game, regardless of who is involved and the notoriety of the teams involved to make it a 50, 50 proposition. It blows my mind. I mean, it's, it's, it is incredible. And of course, there, you know, there's never really been, a good story about this or a documentary about this that's really accurate because those guys are smart enough not to talk. They'll never explain what's really going on. Yeah, I mean, because you'd be, they'd have to be in some type of witness protection because some someone with nefarious desires will will kidnap them and use their powers for evil. Maybe it's, you know, one of those octopies in a tank. Blink twice if the Steelers are going to take it in four. Smart people like to explain why they're smart, but geniuses do not. The people who are really smart, you can tell when someone's really smart because they don't tell you anything. It's like big big brain energy as opposed to big dick energy. I guess. (laughs) If you're really letting your nuts hang, Chuck, you don't really talk about it. You just kind of let gravity do the talking for you. Of course, yes, yeah, yeah. You just be it. You're just about it. What do you think? I mean, I think one of these guys could defect eventually and do something. You know what I mean? I think that that's they could get they could get spit out by the system possibly. Yeah, and the guy who made Moneyball can make the movie about it. We're gonna break the fourth wall. It's gonna be fucking sick. Let's get riding on this one, Chuck. I mean, it's it's possible. I, I I don't know. It seems like it would have happened by now. When my friends that do gamble talk about it, it's very confusing. Like it's really hard to understand yeah. what they're talking about if you don't know the terms. It would have to be watered down, or at least half the film would have to be educational. I think to get regular. Half the people. film will be Brad Pitt telling us what a what a over under vig is and stuff like <laughs> yeah, that. Exactly. Like, yeah. The core question is how do you look at an event that hasn't yet happened and figure out a way to become so close to the actual outcome that you can balance the better. So you get half the people betting on one side Half the other because they just make their money on the juice thing. Mm. Like they just want to have a balanced ticket. And they're just their brilliance at balancing these things are just it's like there's I I don't see how if Air Force is playing (laughs) the universe is playing Georgia, like Air Force is playing Georgia. They haven't played. I don't know how many years. Obviously, one team. Is, has a program that is built around football. The other team is a bunch of guys who are playing football before they become whatever they become in the military. How can you look at those rosters and be like, well, it's going to be a 26 and a half point game and then be so close so often? I mean, like the number of backdoor covers that happen in football, it's just mind blowing. And I, I, I would love to know who these guys are or who these people are who are doing this and how they're doing it. I don't know if it's all computer assisted now mm-hmm. and that's sort of like this is what AI is doing or mm-hmm. uh, if there is – like if they have – I guess we all work from the premise that they have information that I don't have, mm-hmm. that they know things that I don't. But even if I had that information, I wouldn't be that accurate. Right. I think there's some people using AI and then there's some old school cats that are doing it with like a pencil. That's what I like <laughs> to imagine and it's new versus old is kind of the, the dichotomy. Like I wouldn't even know – I wouldn't really know how to go about it. I mean, I, outside of 
what any other conventional journalist would do is like go to Vegas, try to talk to these guys, try to convince them that uh, they can trust you and that, you know, that, that you're going to reliably sell what they're doing. But they, they don't want this information to be known. No. Like how there's there's no reason they would want this information to be out there. Oh, well, you know, maybe uh, maybe Caesars or MGM Grand did them dirty and they want a little revenge or something like that. Mm-hmm. You get uh, you get Bill Simmons to put out a little dog whistle on one of his little podcasts over there. They all listen to it. You know what I mean? What's his name? Fat Sal or the cousin cousin yeah. Sal's gonna <laughs> yeah. call his guy in Cleveland, and next thing you know, it's all possible. We got the voice voice detection software where it's all lowered and it's blurry. This thing's in the can. I was just in Vegas, Chuck. How was it? I went to see Morrissey. Oh, really? Alone. Yeah, I've seen him a couple times. And I got to say, it was good. Yeah, I saw him at the Apollo Theater, actually. Oh, I think I might have been there. Yeah. Like 2000, or early 2000s? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, David, I was there. David Johansson was the opening act? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And I remember his back sweat <laughs> formed, a, formed a heart on his shirt. That's right. Only so like, who else could do that? Who so else like, could do did that? He use, we were like, did he use antiperspirant to make this happen? Uh, and I saw him again. I saw him in Akron one time. Uh, he wasn't as good in Akron. Well, what is? Know, I don't. I don't uh, is that a surprise? You know, I don't know if I. I don't know if I rise to the occasion on a Tuesday in Akron the way I do at the Apollo Theater. Chris, is that the show where you got arrested uh, afterwards? No, I got arrested after a Third Eye Blind show. Sadly, got it, got it, not got not quite as sexy. I wanted to to lean a little bit more into the book into the '90s. So we can talk about it. Um, what first of all, what are what are some some '90s subjects or, or maybe some chapters that you wanted to cover but they didn't make the cut? Mm. Maybe they weren't big enough or you didn't really crack it. You know, I would have liked to see a little more rave culture in there, or something like that. I know that's not your forte, though. But it wasn't so much the problem being it wasn't my forte. I mean, like I wasn't the biosphere wasn't like my forte, you know. But could have fooled me. Could have fooled like, me. But like, like this is what. <laughs> so okay, so in the book. Okay, so I write a lot about grunge and Nirvana. There's this chapter on grunge and Nirvana. Okay, mm-hmm. so then people are like, "Well, how come you didn't put that much emphasis on the rise of hip hop?" That's a good argument. Mm-hmm. Then there'll people who'll be like, "Well, rave culture. This is actually what was happening, sort of underneath the surface, that was probably involving more people." And then they're like, "You know, at the end of the decade, there was all those boy bands and Britney Spears, and you never talk about that." <laughs> there was also the period before Nirvana when, like, you know, Firehouse was still touring with like you warrant and these things. And they, that the eighties were still happening. And the fact of the matter is I could have written about all of those artists, but if that would have happened, well, then the book would be the size it is now, but only about music. Mm, so I had mm. to make decisions. Like I had, you know, I like coverage of the 1996 presidential election is just kind of folded into the middle of an essay about Bill Clinton. Yeah. Because I talk about the 92 election. I talk about the 2000 election, but I don't, you know, so, uh, the off year elections, I, I barely touch on. I mean, the thing is there's no, if anybody were to read this book and their reaction would be like, you got everything. This is exactly what it should have been. This is the exact <laughs> amount on every subject. I would think that that person was insane. Mm-hmm. Like that's not going to happen. So when you say like, what are things that maybe maybe I'll rephrase it what was what was something that you had to cut that maybe stung a little bit more than some other thing oh like something that i i that i really wanted to do mm-hmm. and then i couldn't nothing like that because i had done it then mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean i obviously could have just kept working on this book i mean th- th- there would have been uh, i suppose an argument to be made that i could have just kept going and that eventually i would have an 800 page book 
where like the main takeaway would be this is a very completist look at the 90s. But right. I, I just sort of made a decision that I wanted it to be the size of a normal book. Mm. I, di- I, didn't, I didn't want someone to not consume it based on the premise that it just seems like too much. I mean, you know, it's a weird thing. If you think about your own life, you can probably think of situations where like you didn't buy a book or you didn't finish a book because it was just too much. But I would doubt there have been many situations where you didn't buy a book or failed to finish it because you felt it was too short. Yeah, no, <laughs> it just that never happens. It's, nobody's ever not bought a book because they're like, that book is too short. I mean, that'd be, it'd be a weird, it would be weird to like, say, find a book on like, I don't know, history of the, 19th century and it's 106 pages that would be odd you think to yourself like why they've read a pamphlet about this but for the most part i mean my goal was to sort of have nothing in the book that was filler so you know that that to me almost seemed more important than uh kind of stretching out in every direction just to satisfy the person who's like why didn't you talk about Love Jones or like, like, why didn't you talk about, uh, you know, Kennedy from MTV or whatever the case was? You know, there's all these things. You I was talked I was okay, really I upset at the Kennedy erasure. And I'm glad yeah. that you brought it up and I didn't have to, Chuck. I mean, some people have said, like, well, you don't talk at all about like David Letterman and Jay Leno and all that stuff. And I was like, I don't know. I feel like that actually is something that is just like. There's a book about that. You can read that book. I was yeah. about to say there's multiple books about that. Yeah. Only that. I would have liked to write a little more about the movie Slacker, actually, which I think has a lot of meaning in terms of how the 90s kind of unspooled. But my wife had done a book about Dazed and Confused. I had interviewed Richard Linklater for But What If We're Wrong, about like a section on dreaming from a book I wrote in 2016. So to write a bunch about Slacker, which I've also written about before, it sort of seemed like, well, this is this is a little strange. It's like it, this is too much in my household on this one guy's life. Uh, so I didn't write about that movie. But, you know, also it was that was an easy one not to do because that wasn't really part of the monoculture. That was something that was sort of smaller than that. And and the the repercussions sort of of its ideology or whatever moved on were bigger you know? than the yeah you know i, I want to talk about nirvana with you a little bit okay because because i'm not a believer and what and that they existed they existed i can i've uh, no i believe that i believe they existed no, i believe they existed whereas i was listening to in utero in preparation of today's episode i would never listen to nirvana like i would never think to put that on and and i don't know what that says about me or if it's just like I lived through that. I mean, I'm, I'm about to be 40. Like, it's kind of my, you know, it's it's reasonably my generation, I think. I, I don't know. I found it to be a little bit corny, even at the time. You know what? That's a completely understandable argument. And the fact that you don't really listen to it, but brought it up in this conversation, kind of illustrates why I wrote about it. Mm-hmm. Because Nirvana's non-musical influence was much greater than their musical influence. Damn. No, but you're I right. Mean, you're right. But they are, you know, they are... The, the most lucid example of underground culture becoming the mainstream culture, feeling this sort of tension with what that means, perceiving their own success as ridiculous, and that becoming actually mm-hmm. the the biggest thing about them. They're 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 distaste <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. for being the biggest yeah. band in the world, and that what you really see there is rock in general. Uh, all those bands from Seattle, but sort of everything that would happen going forward, mm-hmm. sort of coming to full consciousness and self-awareness. And self-awareness is what kills art. 
And the reason rock music moved out of the center of the culture was because of what happened in the early 90s when rock became Mm self-aware. And all these ideas that it once meant were now things that the band was, you know, uh, uh, completely conscious of and uh, uncomfortable with. So, like, they're more of a, a hinge point in this. Like that, that it, it was the beginning of the recession of rock from the culture, which, you know, nobody really noticed for 15 years, but really started happening in 1991 and 1992. Well, we're, we're still in it right now. Do you, you agree? In what? In the, the, the rock music recession. I mean, well, it's not really now part of the conversation. It's, it's closer to the way, say, jazz was in the 1980s. I mean, they'll like, they'll always be people making rock music. Of course. They'll of always course. be able to go to Omaha, Nebraska and find rock stations on the radio, just in the way you can go to any city in the country and find a jazz station. Mm. There, there will be people, but now it is sort of a simulation of itself. Mm. I mean, like there's, there's a real limit to what there was a limit to what rock could be to begin with because we don't use a lot of instruments, basically guitar, bass drums some keyboards hell yeah bro that's right and that's all you need yes well but but there's a real (laughs) limit to what you can do with that eventually you're going to use all the possible combinations of that outside of just like kind of going like frank zappa ish and just be weird to be you know to be strange um we don't want like so there was there was like a limit to what to like rock and roll's potentiality to begin with and then that was reached Mm -hmm. while it was still (laughs) the most popular art form in the world and Mm. now it is not and now it is not. So do you but do you think there's an opportunity for it to return or will that be pure if and if it does will that be purely like nostalgia based or will that be actually like an excitement about new music being created in that genre? I mean I, it could happen but I would say it's incredibly unlikely. Like I mean it's it is it is as likely as as jazz becoming the biggest music in the country again, almost. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I guess because of the way, I mean, you know, you know, it's just, there's all these kind of weird things like, okay, so rock music is really the only 20th century art form where the idea is this is for young people almost exclusively. Mm-hmm. Like, so it, it kind of comes out of after World War II, the idea of the teenager is invented. Kids are driving cars now. You know, <laughs> we moved away from this idea that you're a kid mm-hmm. until you get a job or get married. Then you're an adult. There's now this middle period of life. So now we have this art for them, this rock music. You know, I mean, you look, you you can find interviews of like Mick Jagger in 1971 getting asked questions about Mark Bolin of T Rex, like. How are you going to do this? You're so old and this young person is coming in to <laughs> yeah. take your job. Yeah, and then yeah. like and then you can see him again in like like when the like the undercover record comes out in like nineteen eighty. You can find interviews on like Friday night videos where Mick Jagger's like, Well, you know, <laughs> I know we're too old to be doing this, but it's like we're just kinda of doing it anyways. Well now it's normal, right? Now it just kinda of keeps going. Now like a you know, the hold steady or whatever has existed much longer than the Beatles existed. <laughs> yeah. Like the, all of these things now kind of exist in perpetuity. Um, and that has also changed like the meaning of this. Like it's, it's hard for rock music to have uh, like, a, like, a, like, a, like a, any kind of transferable emotion to it or whatever. If, you know, their parents like the exact same music or if their parents are paying to go see U2 and the Eagles and all these things for $180. And that's still part of this universe that they're supposed to exist in. That's supposed to be like this kind of not necessarily rebellious, but like kind of a transgressive Mm -hmm. thing, like, you know, new, 
Yeah, Chris. I Chris, I think you might not like Nirvana and and bands like that because you think it sounds ugly. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it sounds ugly necessarily. I just think that it's. Um, I think you're just such a aesthetic based person that you know, like the squelching voice and guitar and screaming and imperfections going on maybe your brain doesn't respond well to that or something it's definitely a chris problem i would agree with that like all things that i don't like people love to tell me that it's my fault so thank you for kind of thank you for doing that (laughs) i think you're right for the most part and i think that it is the I, i do think music sounds too perfect now actually jason and i think that is something that maybe a younger generation doesn't even realize that they are accustomed to if that makes sense like it's like everything feels like it's made with a computer, but they grew up with a computer, so maybe they're just okay with that, and they don't know what else exists. Well, there's a huge backlash of that, of you know, lo-fi everything, and sure, sure, fucked up everything, and I want to film this on a shitty video camera. And well, I mean, but they're but they're sort of uh, they're sort of trapped by their own technology mm. in a way. I mean, okay, so like, okay, when say Pro Tools, when Pro Tools was a new thing. When people were using Pro Tools for the first time. Pro Tools is a computer software that you use to record music for listeners who don't know. Exactly. And like you can have it on your computer and like like right behind me there's my son's drum kit and his guitar. It's like if I had Pro Tools I could re- start recording right here. Mm-hmm. And when that was new, the complaint was like, well, it's going to sound clinical. It's going to sound like yeah. uh, like a computer. It's not going to sound natural. It's not going to sound like it's being recorded in an Abbey Road or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they found, well, actually it is. We can change we can we can we can change and manipulate these sound waves so it actually does sound like Abbey Road or whatever. But what that means then is the sound of music kind of reaches this static point where instead of the technology being this new thing and this new sort of new landscape, it's can this replicate the way things were in the past? And that's why it feels like, you know, this idea like the slow cancellation of the future that I talk about in every interview It's because it's the most (laughs) pressing thing that's happening now or like, okay, or digital film. Okay. So in the past, when they would shoot on film, um, you would be limited by like the, what, you know, what you can do with light and what you can do with filters mm-hmm. and all these things. Now on digital, you can be like, well, I want this to look like Barry London. Mm-hmm. And you can make it look exactly like that. But as a consequence, the the innovation in like the appearance of film uh, is not following kind of the linear trajectory it did for most of the 20th century. Now it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's it, when, when you see things from five years ago, or 15 years ago, like you might be able to pick up cultural references that tell you which came first, but just from the way it looks, it's just kind of the taste of the time. You could swap those two time periods and nobody would be confused. Damn. Speaking of, um, I guess speaking of the old stuff, I was, I was reading, I don't know where I read, where I read it, but it, it said around the average age of 33 is when people stop checking for new music. Is that something that you're conscious of as you get older? Do you have to kind of physically remember to check for new music? Is that innately inside of you and you just do it subconsciously? Or have you stopped checking for new music? Well, first of all, I, I don't think the age can be 33. It's got to be more like 24 right, or 25. <laughs> because it's, it's pretty rare to find somebody who's still like who's outside of the media world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. who is really into like finding new music at the age of 29. Those people exist, but that's kind of rare. For a lot of people, I think the majority of the U.S. populace, mm-hmm. mysteriously, music stopped being good during their sophomore year in college. <laughs> like that's often where it stops. Like 
for me personally, well, it's not my job anymore, right? When it was my yeah. job, I sort of had to do that. Now I find that these things come to me. Like somebody I know will tell me to listen to Turnstile or whatever. They'll say, listen to this. It's kind of like, I know you don't like hardcore, but this is what it would be like if a hardcore band was produced by Bob Rock. I'm like, oh, good, okay, good, good description. Listen to good it or description. whatever. Yeah. That was, that was what it was told to me. Um, and you know, so, so now it, it seems as though, uh, there's no motive for me, uh, to look for new things because, uh, I, I know if I wait, the good stuff or the things that are interesting to me will, will get there eventually. And there's no time element. Mm -hmm. Like there's no, when I was at spin magazine or whatever, there's, there's this pressure sort of sort of know about everything that's happening while it's happening. I'm not like that anymore. Like, like if it turns out that I don't hear the best record from this year, until 2028 you're gonna you're gonna be good doesn't fucking matter i'm gonna have the same experience then as i would now mm. except maybe with the with with the security that there's a reason this is still around mm. i see what you mean it made it through the gauntlet and it's still somebody's yeah. still telling me to listen to it yeah. how old are your kids do you like are they is he i mean he's old enough to play drums but like are they putting you onto music or are they too young well they're eight and six so they okay so, they're young yeah, they're, they're not really to the age i mean like uh, he's learning guitar, right? So he's like learning to play like Smoke on the Water and like mm -hmm. Dirty Deeds Done Cheap. And so it's like, <laughs> like he's like the songs you learn as a guitarist are still classic that. rock songs. It's still so. that. House of the Rising Sun, all that stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think that over time, a song like Smoke on the Water will become akin to like playing chopsticks on a piano. I think we might be there already, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. That, that if you like, if you're, if you want to take up this instrument, the first lesson that you have with the song is the song. Um, which is why it's always, you know, it's confusing when people say like, well, what music of today, uh, will still exist in, you know, a hundred years or whatever. And it's like, well, you can't look at it based on how good you think the song is. I mean, the, the Mariah Carey Christmas song is still <laughs> going to last in a hundred years. So that's a good song, but it also, has a reason to be played every year mm -hmm. you know um, um like a seven nation army is going to exist over time because they play that at soccer and football stadiums with the band yeah so people are going to be familiar with that melody and they'll be like oh this is a regular song too both of those reasons that those songs are going to exist have nothing to do with their merit yeah in terms of how good they are compared to the rest of music or even the rest of those artists catalog there's but there's there's a place for it i know that makes sense what do you we you know quickly just a sidebar what do you think about jack white Chuck? Uh, well, I, uh, I, what do I think about him? That's right. What do you think about this blue-haired freak, Chuck? I do think the blue hair thing was a strange decision. I mean, <laughs> you talk about a guy who likes colors. Like, that's a dude who's into colors. Um, I, like many people, I mean, this is no super insightful opinion. For whatever reason, he has never made music outside of the White Stripes as good as the music in that band, mm -hmm. uh, even though there's a real limitation because it's just two instruments and, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> Meg White's a very straight-ahead drummer. But somehow within those constraints, within those obstacles, that was the best work yeah. he does or has done. Um, every time he has a new record come out, very often the first single is uh, is, is kind of really grabs me and I like that. You don't hear guitar in public spaces much anymore in that way. So it's like, oh, if I hear it in, on the radio or whatever, it's interesting. Um, when I interviewed him, uh, he was a young artist and he was extraordinarily adversarial. <laughs> and, um, and, but I, which, and I don't think he would be that way now. Was this spin era? Yeah. It was like the, it was the first time they were on the cover of spin. Yeah. And, you know, he, he had, a, he had this interesting, I don't know if it's a, 
work or whatever, but this is how he was. If he felt in any way the question you were asking was in any way leading, he would say the exact opposite. <laughs> so like there's like there's like a song on their second record called Little Bird. Mm-hmm. And it's got a very Jimmy Page like riff to it. <laughs> and I start asking him about that. And as soon as he sees me that I'm asking him this question about Jimmy Page, he tells me he's n- really never listened to Led Zeppelin. <laughs> he has no interest in Led Zeppelin. Jimmy who? That's just sort of his natural inclination. And that anytime he thinks that they're trying to, oh, at the time, he was a younger person. Yeah. That, that he just, he kind of, like, he was still one of these people, I guess, like Jimmy Page, who still had like an almost famous view of the music media mm. that somehow that this is the enemy who's trying to humiliate me and change the meaning of how my music is sort of absorbed by audiences, which with younger audiences and younger musicians, that's not how it is at all. I mean, like you interview Taylor, Taylor Swift or whatever, like she sees this interview as part of her, yeah. in a way, almost like part of her catalog. Like, like I want to say things in this interview that's going to help me get, <laughs> you know, sort of promote this music the way I want it to be heard or whatever. And, and he wasn't like that. He was the old way, which is like, People should sit in their bedroom and stare at an elm cover and play this record and imagine <laughs> what like it means, you know, and that's that's almost entirely gone now. Like I it's been a long time since I've done a feature or like a, even any kind of article on a young musician. Um, probably Taylor Swift's probably the last one, actually. Where was the Taylor? <laughs> where the Taylor Swift story? Where was that? That was in GQ. Okay. And what era of T Swift is this? The good one. Like Shake It Off had not come out yet. It was. It was. Did you find her? But did you find her to be professional to the point of you didn't ever feel like you were getting an a, a, a like real look at her? Was the sheen too strong, or do you think you broke down the walls? Well, you know, she just she kind of has two ways of talking. Mm-hmm. She has the way of talking that you, she normally does, and then if you ask her a question that she doesn't like, or that or or that she feels is a meaningful question, she kind of talks in this different way. So mm-hmm. you could always tell in the conversation um, she was kind of bothered by the fact that I had once met someone who knew her pretty well. And this person had described her as calculating <laughs> and she, she, she really hated yeah. that because to her, she was like calculating is just like negative, a, a way of saying a negative way of saying, I think about what I do. So then when, you know, and like, you know, there's a lot of artists now, like I, you know, who like, you know, you do an interview with them, they're like, they'll send you stuff. I see, yeah. you know, like she, nothing like that. I didn't get anything from her. And in fact, like when the story then came out, she promoted the photographs from GQ Mm-mm. on Twitter, but she didn't promote the article. And it turns out it was because of my, I wrote about the calculating thing. <laughs> and I guess cause after, cause after we had talked about it, I think that she sort of and described why she didn't like the idea of being calculating or like, she kind of thought like I was not going to write about it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that I would describe anyone of that level of fame as calculating. I think that's kind of part of the job a little bit. And I also don't see that as negative. That's what she would argue, I think, too. Although I... I am of the opinion she's a little more calculating than most, mm-hmm. but that is also, but she's also more mm-hmm. successful than almost all. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. you know, what is that? You know, robots don't like to be called robots, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I, it's tough to get an answer out of someone like that that feels authentic. I, I think I know what you mean. Like, as soon as the tape recorder turns on, like the tone of voice changes, you know, the whole thing has a shift. Well, yeah, you know, and it's, it's hard because I mean, she's got someone like her. She's got like a lot of, 
a lot to lose and a lot of concerns mm-hmm. and a lot of things, you mm-hmm. know, like, you know, it's kind of talking about the idea of like someone listening to her music, you know, someone who's feels like they're outcast or whatever and relating to her music. And I was like, you know, I look at you, you almost seem the opposite of that. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, and then, exactly. So I was yeah, like, yeah, but yeah. I was like, but everybody has those feelings, you know? So what's a, like, yeah. what are you writing about? You know? And she told me this story about how she had an issue with like, a friend of hers once when she was young and so her mom took her to like the largest mall in Pennsylvania and she remembers this whole thing and you know to make up for it and then someone told me well like you know that's that's a song of hers like <laughs> like what she's describing yeah. she's written about yeah. in a song you know but cause, but cuz you know cuz here I am I'm asking her a question basically essentially if we really reduce it I'm saying be vulnerable right now tell me something mm-hmm. about yourself that is going to humanize you to people who think that you are somehow separate from the normal experience of living. And she's like, I've got the perfect song for that. If you asked me that question the way I just said it, I wouldn't answer it. I wouldn't consciously tell you something sort of deep and you know sad about my own life just because it would make for an interesting podcast. You know, I wouldn't do that. But do you think that when you're, I mean, I I know you haven't done it in a while, but I I feel like you were, I mean, you've done it more than most people on this earth. But I mean, I think that probably in the early days of spin, the canned response, you you saw the canned response or maybe the, the repeated anecdote, you know, the way, you know, when somebody goes on Letterman or whatever, it'd be that kind of thing. I'm sure you saw the increase in that as people got more protective over their image as social media kind of came to to light. I was at Spin from 2002 to 2006. So the only Mm. social media was Friendster (laughs) and then MySpace. So in terms of being a celebrity, they were not involved with Friendster and MySpace. Mm -hmm. So if I was talking to like, oh, I don't know, Beastie Boys or whoever, you know, it's like things like social media, they they weren't, that wasn't even something... I mean, if if you if you had said to them, "What do you think of social media?" They would probably be like, "Well, all media is social, right?" As as <laughs> but I'm saying society. you did that. You did that era where it wasn't there, and you continued to do it afterwards. And I think that that is that had to be the big. I, I feel like as an interviewer, that had to be the biggest shift in behavior, or one of the biggest shifts in behavior from subjects. Yeah, because for a lot of the a lot of people, you know, their idea was, "I will sit through this interview." about you know what i mean culturally and who i am as an artist and what my motive is to mm. get out the one message which is that my record is coming out may 18th <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's right but now they're like well that's that's one message like i that's like the one thing you can do on twitter is you can tell people that something you're doing is coming out and here's the date <laughs> like it's like this idea that somehow like celebrities have now like taken control of their image there is absolutely nothing that celebrity twitter accounts and instagram accounts that are doing that has any significance to anyone who cares about them except their most ardent fan mm-hmm. who just you know like like for anybody who's actually intrigued by the meaning of these things no one's going to self promote that but they can just avoid the interview now because the thing that they wanted to get out when the thing was in, in existence, how you could buy it, that is the one thing that social media is well designed. Damn, to you're shopping. right. Yeah. I love shopping. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I think that the, we talk about this a lot on the show though, a little bit. Um, the thing that's happening now where there's no real interview, it's basically like your, your fellow celebrity does it. Or you write, you know, Beyonce writes an essay for her Vogue story. And it's like, I think that level of control is, um, is, is 
I think it might hurt in the long run, honestly. I think it might hurt in the long run because it, it, it again, plays into what you're talking about, about the calculating thing. It makes it so much more obvious. But I think the rise of the hive has made it matter less. Like I think that fans don't actually give a shit about anything once they're locked in in, in the way that it happens now. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's I don't know. You could say it's almost kind of a, a consequence mm-hmm. of just how – even the biggest things in the culture matter less than they had in, in during previous eras mm-hmm. because of like, you know, the, 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 the kind of the splintering of culture and sort of, you know, it's a strange thing. Like, you know, so when I was a journalist in the nineties, I was obsessed with like postmodernism. Mm-hmm. You know, I have I, I wonder how many articles I wrote where I just kind of like <laughs> threw the term postmodern <laughs> into the piece, right? Because that's what everyone was doing. That was the thinking of the time. And at the time, um, you know, it was just like it's an interesting idea. It's like a new way to think about a, a celebrity or a movie or a book or all these things. Um, and now I feel kind of weird because I suppose I helped make that the only way to think about anything. I mean, obviously I played the tiny role in this, you know, but I was one of the people I think who sort of probably pushed the media in this postmodern direction. And now that is the media in totality mm-hmm. that, that that's, that's sort of the only thing that there is. Um, and that makes things both harder to understand, but also that understanding is less significant because it's like, it, it's what almost your most cynical projection is probably part of the answer. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. I, I don't, I mean, it's hotly debated. It's one of those things that was like hotly debated for like six months. I feel like, you know what I mean? That style of like the way that it was, um, there were no other voices except the celebrity voices. It's like all these documentaries that come out that are produced by the celebrity. And it's yes. like, uh, I just watched two hours of MGK like complaining about his life, and it's then I noticed that he paid for this, basically, you know. And that, and, and nobody likes that, right? But I will say, lucky is the only way. I was lucky that I've I've kind of been on both sides of this now. Okay, so I spent most of my career interviewing people. Then there was a period where I was interviewing people and being interviewed, mm-hmm. and now most of it is me being interviewed more often than I interview anyone mm-hmm. else. And there are certain things that I would have never allowed as a journalist that now seem insane to me that uh, somebody wouldn't allow with me. I mean, like, for, <laughs> like, 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 well, I mean, now, now it just seems kind of crazy. It'd be like, I mean, I now realize that very often, like, you know, I'd be say interviewing, I don't know, Dave Perner or something mm-hmm. from Soul Asylum. Let's and, go. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for saying Soul Asylum. And, and like what uh, what I what I think I was unconsciously doing was almost trying to trap him into saying something that was more interesting than he wanted it to be. Mm. Like I was trying to get him to, to to feel comfortable and also sort of take the question seriously and in a way somehow that would coalesce with him saying something that he'd never said before that would be interesting to other people. You know, mm-hmm. but it wasn't necessarily how he felt, right? If I convinced him to talk about, you know, dating Winona Ryder or whatever, which was a minor relationship in his life, but to the public it's a bigger deal because they're both famous, then it was somehow a a successful story. So now when people interview me, you know, I realize that if I misspeak or if I say something that on on paper is going to seem arrogant, even though I was joking at the time, I know that I'm never going to be able to go back and say like, well, that's not actually like what I felt. So if you 
print this, you'll consciously be printing something I don't believe. Mm-hmm. But that's just how it is. <laughs> like the, the only journalists who are generally allowed to let their sources read the material are science reporters. Like if you're doing a, a genetics piece, it's totally understandable to take the piece to a geneticist and say like, is this true? Because you want it to be right. But somehow in every <laughs> other aspect of journalism, we're like, buy, it's like buyer beware. It's like, if I talk to you and you fuck up, that's your life now, you know? <laughs> um, so I, I, I feel very strange about that. Like, if I if I went back to profile writing now, um, I would be much much better at it, and the stories would likely be less interesting, or at <laughs> least, or or at least they would get less attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they would, you know, they would they, they would not be the kind of thing where it's like, oh, can you believe Val Kilmer said this or whatever? I don't know if that would be part of a story I would write now, because if I felt like that was in the piece, I would talk to the dude and make sure it's like, no, this is actually how you feel about this, right? Like this isn't, this isn't me sort of interpreting what you're saying because other people are going to interpret it. And some people are going to willfully misinterpret it, which is just part of the world now. I mean, that's, you, you have to now expect that anything you do will not just be misinterpreted, but willfully misinterpreted by a sector of the population. Could you argue, or would you agree that, podcasts are like one form of interviewing somebody where you do have that control where you can say like hey i meant to say this instead of that can you cut that out and usually they will say yes it's not going to be like a gotcha moment and i'm gonna absolutely i mean like you know i i feel 25 times more comfortable doing this than if you guys were just tape recording this and you were going to write a piece for bandy fair or the atlantic Mm -hmm. or whatever then i'd be like well I got no idea what they really want to do here and like what I'm really like, you know, uh, uh, how is this going to be used? But here it's sort of like, even if you have bad intentions, like even (laughs) if you go back and like, like if like the, like, like the intro to this podcast is you just saying (laughs) terrible things about me, you know, people are still then going to want to watch the thing and they're going to see or listen to the thing. How I guess it's only audio only, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to listen to it and they're going to, they're going to hear how the conversation went. So I, I mean, I feel much safer in that way, you know. Whereas on paper, you, you can't. Do you, will you ever go back? Do you think? Are you good? Is, are is this? You're going to write books forever? Is that where you're at now? Probably. <laughs> I feel like you could have a return to form. You know, what if somebody is so compelling that you feel a magnetic pull? Well, that's absolutely. I mean, there are some people. I guess if I was offered the opportunity to interview them, I would still say yes. Sure. You know, but sure. but the number of those people, yeah, yeah, yeah. is um is you know they keep dying smaller and smaller they keep dying mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh that's that that's true you know i mean like i would i i every place i have ever worked every single one from fargo to akron to spin to gq esquire new york times magazine every one of them has put in a request for me to interview axel rose okay mm. and i will be honest i think that <laughs> i am probably as qualified to do that as anyone in terms of like being able to actually do the interview mm-hmm. and write something kind of about it that, that wouldn't just be like a, a transcript of the conversation. He's always said no. And now we've kind of moved to a phase where my desire to do that has sort of waned a bit because he's a different person now. And the things that we would be talking about would now be seen through the prism of his modern view. Like one thing that I, I told this line other places. So I, I like you'd <laughs> mentioned, you'd mentioned like seeing Morrissey, right? Yeah. How mind blowing it would it be to go to like the most progressive kid you could find in 1989 
and say like, do you know who's going to really support all your views in the future? Axl Rose. <laughs> but, you know who but you know who you're going to hate? It's Morris. <laughs> like they would have been like, what? What? Like how could that? Like what? What do you mean? You know, it's like, but that, you know, so, so now if I interviewed Axl That's like Rose, Ohio State versus Air Force. <laughs> 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 yeah, actually, speaking speaking of that, we're I think we're we're gonna have Bob Guccione Jr. on the podcast in a little while. I think he's buying Spinback or something. That's, uh, I think so too. I believe. I believe yeah. so. How long gone exclusive? How long gone exclusive? But I mean, wasn't wasn't the Axl Rose thing back in the day? The whole reason why they had that beef is they would they would ask for full creative control, final say on the whole piece, and then. I think they charged money as well. Is that is that true back in the day? Well, I mean, okay, like <laughs> you you had boots on the ground back then. I was just a wee lad. Yeah, well, no, I, mean, I was when, during the period you're talking about. This is like the use your illusion period, right? Where they're at the height. I'm in getting the ring, motherfucker. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> like during that time, you know, like in that in that song, "Get in the Ring," he basically attacks every place that covers him with any consistency. I guess he mm-hmm. saw it all. As you know, um, I don't think. I think it would be, although you never know, because, you know, celebrities tend to look at publications as like monoliths. Mm-hmm. Like, I, it's, this will happen. Like, I'll meet a writer and he'll be like, I hate the New York Times. You know, they gave me a terrible review of my book in 1988 or whatever. I was like, <laughs> well, that person's probably not there now. It's yeah, like, it's like, you know, like, it's like, I don't, I don't think that there's any institutional knowledge of that review that still kind of moves <laughs> through the, you know, um, so, but maybe <laughs> Axel Rose still is like, spin fuck me over in the 90s. Fuck them, you know, but I don't think so because he seems like, I don't think so, a, a dramatically different person. Like not, you know, everybody changes as they age. He's changed more than most. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the things that I would be really interested in asking him about, I think he would probably now be closer to almost someone like kind of like using therapy speak or whatever, sort of like, well, you know, I was very fearful at that time and I was fearful of the world. Yeah. Yeah. So I I don't know if it would be the same. I would have liked to interview Prince, but obviously he's dead. Um, allegedly, yeah, allegedly. <laughs> um, although, and, but and he would have been a great person to interview because you know he had this policy that you couldn't tape record the interview and you couldn't take notes. You couldn't you couldn't bring a pen or a pencil in anything. Had to go off dome. Yeah, yeah, you had to just kind of go, you know, because he felt that he wasn't worried about being misquoted. He was being worried about being quoted accurately in a way that would seem. Mm-hmm. Not not a reflection of what he meant, but he's like, if I just talk to the yeah. guy and the guy has to sort of describe what I'm like, I'm going to come off better. Prince is coming in vi- vibes only, as the kids say yes. nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> That's smart. I didn't know that. I've never heard that about him before. That's very smart. Um, I was I was listening to a previous podcast interview, interview with you earlier, and you mentioned something. Or you said something that sort of reminded me a little bit of, of Chris Uh-oh. And, and maybe podcasting in general. You said the consumer prefers someone whose opinions are almost too strong, inflexibly certain, and you uh, and you don't tr- and you said you didn't don't trust people like that. Yeah. First of all, first of all, why do you not trust people like that? And second of all, I mean, I guess maybe that's it. Just if you're talking to someone in real life, you would rather have a rational person than a bombastic person in most cases. Mm-hmm. But if you're listening to something and it's a, it's already a one way kind of like people can't talk back to this podcast. Right. So, Thank God. Yeah. Thank so God. they would be, <laughs> it would be more fun for them. Um, if I had, or if you guys had extremely strong opinions that you were inflexible about. Okay. Um, you know, but the fact of the matter is it's like problems are complex. 
So if somebody has an opinion and then they really feel forceful about it, it probably just means they haven't thought about it that much. Because mm. the more you think about something, the more you're going to be pushed to a centrist position. I mean, this is why it's just, it's, I just find it yep. mind blowing to me that people will use the term centrist or pragmatist as an insult. <laughs> That's it's so weird to me that somebody would be like, uh, like, like, the, I mean, maybe, maybe it might lack passion. I mean, I, I agree with you 100%. To be intelligent, you need to remove the passion from the conversation. I mean, it's like, it's like we, you know, we can't decide if we're trying to figure out like, should a state have capital punishment? Okay. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't make sense to make that decision, to have that decision made by 15 people who just had a family member killed. <laughs> if there was 15 people who just had a family member murdered, those are not the people you ask, should capital punishment exist in this state? You need to ask people who are outside of that, mm -hmm. okay? You know, so to me, if somebody says, it's, it's, it's troubling to me that you have this kind of centrist position because, like, you lack passion, I was like, well, that's, that's not an accident. Like, that's, like, I, maybe I was passionate when I first thought of the thing, and now <laughs> I've slowly moved to a point where I've considered the possibility that passion is usually misplaced. I've considered both sides so carefully. It is. It's, it may, it's definitely made it tougher to be an essayist because mm. people, you know, people like polemics. They think it's really, they'd love it. Thank God yeah. for me and this podcast. <laughs> also, it's, also, it's, it's, it's more work to be a centrist or, or a pragmatist, I guess. And it's easier to just choose one side and then go on with your life. Yes. Uh, a last question for you, Chuck. Now that you, um, you have a wife, you are with child. Do you consider yourself to be more of a wife guy or a dad guy? Uh, okay. Uh, the, the way you're asking that question makes me think that there's a meaning to this that I don't fully understand. Don't know. I see this. I know. No, because I see this. I see this term wife guy on Twitter. That's right. And it's, and, the, and these are guys who often reference their wife. They like their wife. They like their wife too much, basically. And, and is the idea that if you, that, that, or I thought it was maybe, I guess maybe this is, I jumped to conclusions. I thought when people were accused of being a wife guy, <laughs> It was like people kind of like who say like, I'm a feminist. I have a daughter. Like because I have a wife, mm. you have to somehow take what I say about feminism more seriously. No, no. I no, no, no. To, to me, the meaning of a wife guy is somebody who's maybe devoted a little too much of their life to their wife to the point where their happiness hinges on the happiness of their wife. Well, okay. And they've, they've become a little too obsessed with being in a relationship. Uh, that then, okay. So, but the thing is, you know, like my wife and I are both adults, right? So like we <laughs> good have, to know. Thank you for kind of clearing that up. Like, you know, Thank you for clearing like, that up. You know, we both, we, we both have agency over how we feel in a way that kids don't always have mm -hmm. like like a lot of times um kids don't understand why they're upset or why they're having fun they just don't get it so like that old adage is like you can only be as happy as your least happy child that's absolutely true. <laughs> like there's no there's like no way around that. like you're never if if your kid if, if one of my kids is having a bad day i'm having a bad day if my wife is having a bad day i'm sad and i'm trying to help her out in a sense but like i also know that she is smart enough to, mm. to figure it out so i think that that's kind of the difference i think i mean you know it's just uh uh i mean no you know just and just the amount of time you invest thinking about your children it's just it's just wild like i i, I can't <laughs> i can't i it's hard for me now 
to understand what I was thinking about before this. I guess that's why I was writing about Saved by the Bell and that shit. It was like I had, there was so much – I had so much fucking time I could actually invest that much thinking into like Zach Morris. And it's like it didn't matter. It was easy. Like that would mean – like Six Drugs and Cocoa Puffs, that's a lot. That book is old now. I never think about that book, but people bring it up to me because it's the most popular one. It's a book I wrote like in four months. Like I, I can't believe it. I just did it. Just did it. You know, mm-hmm. and now it, I don't feel like I'm that kind of person at all. That, I, that that there's no way that I could do anything, any book length thing, like in four months, because it's not the most important thing in my life. I mean, for most of my life, writing was the most important thing in my life. Now my wife and my kids are more important. Sounds like Jason. It sounds like the answer is kids guy, which is good. Which is good. That's the right answer, Chuck. Is it the right answer? Okay. That's the right answer. That's yeah. the right answer. I knew you. I knew you would get there, and I'm glad that you walked us kindly down that path. Mm-hmm. Chuck Klosterman, thank you for joining us today on uh, How Long Gone. Uh, it was a pleasure. Truly, it was honor. a pleasure. We both read it, read your stuff for years and years, so it was nice to sit and chat with you on this uh, internet platform. Thanks for having me on. No problem. And the '90s is in stores now, uh, wherever you buy books. I guess I guess that's it. Jason, is that it? Chuck, is that it? Unless you have any new things to announce in your life that are absolutely fucking insane. <laughs> uh, well, you know, they're they're making that book Downtown Owl into a movie. Oh, are they? It's coming out next year. They already made it, I guess. I wondered <laughs> I wondered I wondered how you afforded that house. That's good to know. Congratulations on that. That's good. <laughs> oh, you know what I got? You know what I, I got almost I sold the rights to that book so mm-hmm. long ago mm-hmm. at a time when it seemed so impossible. That they would ever become a movie. There was like a floor and a ceiling to what I could make. And the floor was 5,000 and the ceiling was 50,000. <laughs> and that deal never changed. So this house has nothing okay, to do with okay. that. So that, okay. So that, it bought you a couple cold <laughs> brews down at the local blue bottle. That's still good. You know what I mean? It's still good. Do you know who's in the, who's starring in the movie? I don't know if we can say all that, Chris. Wow, how can I suddenly, I can't think of his name. He's a, he's a, uh, he's a pretty famous actor. Um, he I would was hope so. In, he was in Apollo 13. Tom um, Hanks. Uh, no, no. Uh, Ed Harris. Ed Harris Whoa, is the Ed, biggest that, name. This is Ed good. Ed Harris is the biggest name. Um, Lily Rabin. Lily Rabe, I guess. is her. She's like a, more of a, a theatrical. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was in like American Horror Story and stuff. Mm-hmm. She's in it. Um, uh, boy, I, I can't. There's a, you, get a, you get a cameo or no? No, I do not get a cameo. Did you get a you little know. script supervisor check or anything? Well, you know. If it, if it had been a nonfiction book, I might have been more interested in being involved with it. But when it's, yeah. a, it's a novel, I feel like you just got to tell people, be creative, do what you want. Yeah, no, you're so right. I, that's a, so I, that's I, a smarter I way. Because that's, it would be, if I was trying to make a movie or trying to do something and somebody was on my case about how it should be, it would not help. So I just let it go. Smart. You're an evolved guy, Chuck. Thank you for joining us. How long gone? We'll talk to you soon. Have a good day. 